We'll be in Luke chapter 23, and we will begin in verse 35, okay? Luke 23, starting in verse 35. So misunderstandings can be a funny thing, right? Uh, Maybe some of you have had some misunderstandings in the past with family members or friends. They can be a, a pretty funny thing. I remember a couple years ago, I saw something on social media. It was this screenshot of a grandmother texting her grandchild, right, which is already a recipe for disaster. But they're texting each other back and forth, and, and at one point, the grandmother is talking about someone famous who passed away, and at the end of the message, she typed LOL. And uh, the grandchild was really confused uh, because LOL stands for laughing out loud. And so they, they go back and forth, and they finally realize that the grandmother thought that LOL stood for lots of love. She didn't realize that LOL stood for laughing out loud. So there's a misunderstanding there, and it's funny, right? So we can have misunderstandings, and they can be funny, but, but sometimes some misunderstandings can be a little more serious. I remember when I was in college, I had a buddy who we were getting ready for final exams. It was final exam week, and in college, your final exams determine how you do in that class. It's like the end-all, be-all. So we were studying for our final exams, and then he finally realized after he looked at his final exam schedule that he missed one of his final exams. So he ended up failing his class because he missed his final exam, all because he misunderstood his final exam schedule. So misunderstandings can range from funny and lighthearted to more serious things. But there is no costlier misunderstanding than misunderstanding our sin. That is the costliest misunderstanding you and I can make in this life. You might remember from last corporate that I was... Uh, quoting the words of my uh, youth pastor when I said, if we have a low view of sin, we'll have a low view of salvation, right? But if we have a high view of sin, we'll have a high view of salvation. So when we have that low view of sin, when we misunderstand our sin, we're not just misunderstanding our sin, but we're actually misunderstanding our Savior. And that is a costly mistake. God's Word teaches us what to think of our sin, and in turn, we grow all the more thankful for our salvation found only in Jesus Christ. So I want nothing more for you guys than to have a deep gratitude for Christ's death on the cross. And that will only come when you realize all that he has saved you from, all that he's brought you out of and into freedom. So here is my call to you guys today. Here's my call. Rightly understand your sin, and you will behold a more gracious Savior. Rightly behold your sin, and you will behold a more gracious Savior. So this brings us to our first point, which is misunderstanding the Messiah. Okay, misunderstanding the Messiah. This is where we come to our text today. Luke chapter 23, verse, starting in verse 35. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Let's stop there. As Jesus hung on the cross to die, everyone joined in on the mocking. You may recall from last corporate's meeting that despite all of the mocking and the ridiculing that Jesus received, he offered them a word of forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And despite his word of forgiveness, the mocks and the jeers kept coming. The religious leaders hurled insults at Jesus, and the Roman soldiers joined in as well. At one point, we see that even one of the criminals hanging on the cross next to Jesus starts ridiculing him. Now, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that both criminals mocked Jesus, but Luke shows only one of the criminals mocking Jesus. So which one's true? It can't be both, right? Only did one of them mock him or did both? Well, the answer is yes. Here's what I mean. Let's say my wife and I went out to a buffet dinner, okay? Uh, And you asked us how it went. You're probably going to get two very different answers, okay? If you ask me how it was, I'll tell you, oh, man, it was great. You know, I had a great time. I got some jalapeno poppers, and I got some, some spicy ramen. It was great. It was a great meal. And if you go up to my wife and you say, hey, how was, uh, how was the buffet dinner? She would say, oh, it was great. It was fantastic. I got, I got some mashed potatoes, and I got some roast, and I got some buttered noodles. She would say, oh, it's so great. So which one of us is right? Which one of us was right about the buffet? The answer is both of us. See, the thing is, we were both looking at the same buffet table from different perspectives. And that's what we have to keep in mind when we're reading through the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? These three are often called the synoptic Gospels. Maybe you've heard that word before. They share a lot of stories in common. They, they overlap on a lot of things, but sometimes they have different details. And the reason for that isn't because there are contradictions in the Word of God. The Word of God is infallible, right? The reason is because they're looking at the same story from different perspectives. So while Matthew and Mark were emphasizing the fact that Jesus was hung between two criminals, Luke is emphasizing the fact that one of these criminals eventually comes to repentance, as we'll see later on. So as we look at these taunts that I just read, we see one thing in common from all of the taunts, and it's this phrase, save yourself. Everyone was crying out for Jesus to save himself because they misunderstood who the Messiah was. The word Messiah means anointed one in the Old Testament, in Hebrew. And the equivalent of that in the Greek is Christ. So when you see Messiah and you see Christ, those both mean anointed one. Anointing was the process of pouring out oils on someone's head in order to set them apart for a specific task. Or the fancy word for that is consecrate. So they were consecrated for a specific task. So people like Aaron, Elijah, and David, they were all anointed as prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. These were the three main groups that were anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. And this is why you'll often hear Christians refer to Jesus as the ultimate or the greatest prophet, priest, and king. He's the greatest prophet because he speaks on behalf of God as God. He's the greatest priest because he's the one mediator between God and man. And he is the greatest king because he is the ultimate ruler over all things. This is who the anointed one was called to be. This is who Israel was called to seek out through the Old Testament messianic prophecies. However, Israel was looking for someone who was set apart, not as a prophet, priest, and king, but as a military leader who would defeat Rome and establish an eternal Jewish kingdom. In fact, there's a story in the Gospels where James and John come up to Jesus and they ask him if they can be at his right and his left hand in his kingdom. What they're asking is if they can be his second and third command when he establishes his political kingdom. Unfortunately, Israel failed to understand certain passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, which are prophecies that predicted a suffering Messiah rather than a political Messiah. 
Here's what these passages say. Isaiah 53, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, 3 through 5 says the following. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Psalm 22, 6 through 8 looks very similar. It says, He was scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Those words sound familiar from the mocking that we hear, right, in this passage. It's because Jesus was the suffering Messiah. Now, don't get me wrong. Israel knew that there was such a concept of a suffering Messiah. Or, I'm sorry, a suffering servant. They memorized massive portions of the Old Testament. Many of them memorized almost the entire Old Testament. So they were very aware of passages like these. But their problem is that they failed to link the suffering servant with the Messiah. They didn't bring the two together. They they thought they were completely separate people. So this is why the criminal joined in with the crowd saying, Save yourself and us. He was certainly taunting Jesus with his words. But... In his words, he represented Israel's misunderstanding of the Messiah. He was expecting Jesus to be a military leader. A military leader who would bring physical salvation. He wasn't expecting a suffering Messiah. But the salvation Jesus brought is far greater than physical, as we'll see in the following verses. This brings us to our next point, which is understanding sin. Understanding sin. Look with me. Starting in verse 40, says this. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So in the midst of all the reviling and the mocking, God brought about a repentant heart in one of the criminals. His first words to the unrepentant criminal are fascinating. He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? I find this passage fascinating after we just spent a whole youth camp dedicated and devoted to exploring what biblical fear looks like. You may have to jog your memories. For some of us, that feels like a a while ago, and some of us, it may feel like yesterday. But I I recall to mind especially another message that was preached in the Gospel of Luke. Pastor Toby Gaynor from King of Grace in Boston, he preached a message on Luke 12, verses 4 through 7, which is where Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If you remember this message, we learned that we are not to let our fear of man elevate over our fear of God. Unfortunately, that's exactly what the unrepentant criminal did. He was elevating his fear of man over his fear of God which explains why he cried out for physical salvation. He was scared of the people putting him to death. 
The repentant criminal, on the other hand, realized that he should fear God far more than man because of his sins. You see, the fear of God teaches us to rightly understand our sin in the face of a holy God. That's what the fear of God does. We see this in the next statement when the repentant criminal said, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This repentant criminal rightly recognized that there was a due penalty for for transgression. This is a concept that is completely found throughout all of the, uh, the Bible, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, there were clear consequences for transgressions. For example, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, there's this concept of an eye for an eye. Maybe you've heard that before. But it's this concept that whatever is done, whatever you do to someone else should also be done to you. Because there are consequences for your transgressions. In the New Testament, Paul makes it crystal clear in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Our sin brings about death. The first step in repentance is coming to the end of ourselves. It's recognizing that we cannot save ourselves. That our sins have brought us so far from God that we cannot bring ourselves to Him. Not only did the repentant criminal confess his sinfulness, but he also affirmed Christ's sinlessness. He affirmed his sinlessness. Look at the end of verse 41. After talking about his sins, he said, But this man has done nothing wrong. Despite all the accusations hurled at Jesus, this criminal was able to see through them all and truthfully declare that Jesus had been wrongly accused. And just as Scripture affirms that our sin deserves death, Scripture also affirms that Jesus was completely and entirely sinless. 1 John 3, 5 tells us that Jesus appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Likewise, 1 Peter 2, 22 says that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is what scripture teaches us about Christ's sinlessness. So only after confessing his sin and affirming Christ's sinlessness does this criminal make his humble request. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As Jesus was dying on the cross, as he was bleeding out, this criminal had the foresight to recognize Jesus as his savior and his king. One commentator wrote something that that I think is really profound. Listen to this. He said, Some saw Jesus raise the dead, and they did not believe. This robber sees him being put to death, and yet believes. So how can we account for his knowledge of Jesus as Savior? Was there something in him that he just inherently knew that this guy was his Savior? Did he bring himself to recognize Jesus as his Savior? The answer is no. It is only by the Lord's kindness and grace that this man was shown that Jesus is his Savior. John 6, 44 records Jesus' words when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me will draw him. It's the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who awakened the criminal's affections and drew him to Jesus. Here's what John Calvin had to say about the robber confessing Jesus as king. He said, Now if a robber by his faith, elevated Christ while he was hanging on the cross to a heavenly throne. Woe to our sloth if we do not behold him with reverence while he's sitting at the right hand of God. Here's what he's saying. He said, if the robber saw him as king 
while he was dying on the cross, then surely we must acknowledge him as king while he's seated on the throne. This repentant criminal's fear of God and his recognition of sin led him to make his request of Jesus. And it is in response to this request that we encounter Jesus' second saying on the cross. We come to verse 43, and this shows us our third and final point, a gracious Savior. A gracious Savior. Verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' response begins with the words, Truly I say to you. He's emphasizing that what he speaks, what he says, will come to pass. And if there's one thing I know about our culture, it's that truth is a fickle thing. I remember I went to public school, kindergarten through 12th grade, and I remember interacting with someone in high school who uh, we were going back and forth talking about what I believed and what she believed. And at one point she looked at me and she said, there is no absolute truth. And I was shocked to hear that. And what she didn't realize while she was saying that was by saying there is no absolute truth, she was making an absolute truth claim. But our culture hates truth. Our culture can't stand truth, right? And they don't like truth because they think it's repressive. They think it's, they think it's authoritarian. But scripture tells us quite the opposite. Scripture doesn't say that truth is repressive. John 8.32 says, this is Jesus' words. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. The truth will set you free. I want you guys to imagine you have a fish. Maybe you do have a fish. You don't have to imagine it. But imagine a fish in a bowl, okay? You've got this fish in a bowl. Now imagine I were to walk up to this fish in a bowl, and I thought, man, that bowl is so repressive. That bowl is holding that fish in from all that he could be. You know what I need to do? I need to grab a hammer, and I need to break that fish out of that repressive bowl and free him from his constraints. Would that be a good idea? Someone said, yeah. All right, yeah, we're doing that with your fish, all right? We're doing that right now. No, it wouldn't be a good idea, right? And here's why. It's because the goldfish is most free within the confines of the bowl. The goldfish is most free within the confines of the bowl. And likewise, you and I are most free within the confines of truth. This is why Jesus can say that the truth sets us free. It's truth that provides the parameters for freedom. And we know the one who is truth, right? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just truthful. He is the embodiment of truth. We know him. And if you have repented and put your faith in Jesus, you have, a, you have been united to the one who is truth. So Jesus started out his response with, truly I say to you. And then he told the criminal that today he would be with him in paradise. Now, this phrase raises some questions for people. For example, how could Jesus say today if he was going to be dead for three days, right? Maybe you haven't thought about that, but maybe now you're thinking, you're like, well, I don't know. How can he say today if he would be dead for three days? Well, we must affirm, okay, with the scriptures and with all of church tradition, that there are two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ, okay? I'm going to get into a little bit of, not that the rest of this hasn't been theology, but this is going to be um, pretty deep, but I trust you guys to follow along. Because I know you guys are smart. I know you guys can keep up with this. And this is crucial for you to understand. It's crucial for you to learn and to grasp, okay? So the scriptures and church tradition confess that there are two natures within the one person of Jesus Christ. 
These two natures are his human nature and his divine nature. Maybe you've heard it said that he's 100% God, 100% man, right? He is fully God, he's fully man. The Chalcedonian Creed was a document written in 451 AD. So it was a lot of early Christians who came together and they wanted to determine how they could rightly speak about Jesus' nature. In response to a lot of heresies of the day, people were saying that Jesus wasn't fully God, he wasn't fully man, different things like that. But they wanted to affirm that he is fully God and fully man. So the creed states this. It says, Jesus must be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. Inseparably. I can't even say it, so don't try writing it down. But inconfusedly is what I want to focus on, okay? Inconfusedly. This means that we must not confuse his humanity and his deity. We mustn't mesh them together as if they're one thing, right? Blurry, and we can't tell the difference, but we must be able to distinguish between the two biblically. And this is how we distinguish the two at his death. Jesus died in his humanity, but he did not die in his deity. Okay, he died in his humanity, but he did not die in his deity. And this is what I mean. We would never say, I would hope you would never say that God died. Okay? God did not die. Because God holds all things together in him, right? Colossians 1.17. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. If you were at the message uh, this morning, um, Mr. Farley, he, he preached on this verse over. He kept coming back, uh, back to it. He upholds all things by the word of his power. If God died, the world and all in it would cease to exist. So Jesus died in his humanity, but not in his deity. And this is how Jesus was able to say, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Because that very day, the criminal died and went to be with God. So the next question this, uh, this Jesus' response raises is, what exactly is paradise? Well, this word is used two other times in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Corinthians, and it's used in Revelation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about being caught up into heaven. And in Revelation, uh, John is writing about the saints entering the New Jerusalem. So paradise in these passages seems to refer to the place in which the righteous live. Paradise is the place in which the righteous live. Uh, but in all three passages, paradise, this is crucial, paradise is only paradise because Christ is there. Paul is caught up into heaven where Christ is, right? The saints are entering New Jerusalem to be with the Lamb, who is Christ. And now here in our passage, we see the criminal is brought into paradise with Jesus. Notice how Jesus doesn't just tell him, today you will be in paradise. He could have said that. He, he could have said, truly I say to you, today you will be in paradise. But he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Heaven is heaven precisely because God is there. Heaven is heaven precisely because God is there. How many of you have played Monopoly? Okay, how many of you have gotten fights playing Monopoly? <laughs> yeah, right, same amount of hands. So, but the thing about Monopoly is there's this card where if your character gets put in jail, you, you're hoping to draw a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? So, oftentimes, I think a lot of Christians subconsciously think of hell as a, uh, I'm sorry, think of heaven as a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? They think of it as fire insurance. They're just trying to escape judgment, and, and that's what heaven is, right? And while that's true to an extent, that's not all that heaven is. Like I said, heaven is heaven precisely because God is there. It's more than just escaping judgment. 
It is eternity in the presence of our Creator and our God. That's what heaven is. Notice how Jesus' answer goes above and beyond the criminal's request. Do you remember what the criminal asked? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All he asked was to be remembered, for Jesus to just have him on his mind. But this is where we see the graciousness of our Lord on full display. Jesus didn't say, truly I say to you, today I will remember you in paradise. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Our Lord is so gracious. He grants salvation to all who repent and trust in his name. That is the Lord that we serve. That is our gracious Savior. So rightly understand your sin, and you will behold a more gracious Savior. The criminal on the cross ultimately recognized and understood his sins. So my question is, do you understand? Do you recognize the due penalty of your sins apart from Christ's atoning work on the cross? Does the recognition of your sin bring you to your knees in repentance and in worship? Here are three responses that God's word calls us to in this passage. Three responses. The first is to fear God. Remember what Jesus said elsewhere in Luke's gospel that I read. He said, fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Fearing the Lord is exactly what led this criminal to repentance. It wasn't until he feared the Lord that he could repent and profess Christ as his Savior. So fear God. Secondly, recognize your sins. Locate the areas in which you personally struggle with sin. You may be fighting lust. You may struggle with pride when you're around others. Whatever it is, locate where you're struggling with sin. And if you're having trouble locating your sin, if, if you're struggling to look inward and really recognize where you're falling short, this is where it's crucial that you turn to your parents, to where your heart is close to your parents, because they know your heart. Some of them probably know your heart better than even you do. So I would encourage you, I would even plead with you, if, if you're wondering where you can grow and sanctify in Jesus, talk to your parents. If they're anything like the parents in this room, I can guarantee you, they will be able to speak into your life. They'll speak wisdom and truth into your life. So turn to your parents. Talk to them. Uh, seek out forgiveness. If for some reason you have wronged them and sinned against them, whatever it is, recognize your sin. Find your sin. Locate it. And the third response is to call out to your gracious Savior. Call out to your gracious Savior. The dying thief spent his entire life sinning. His whole life. Leading up to those final seconds on the cross, he spent his whole life living in sin, turned from God. And he still received grace through Jesus Christ. And if that's not encouragement to you guys, then I don't know what is. There is grace, mercy, and forgiveness found in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So rightly understand your sin, and you will behold a more gracious Savior.